Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Fiona Buckland is a writer and coach who helps her clients bring about positive change in their lives. And she's the author of a new book on that subject called Find Your Own Path. She sat down with Nicole Wong to share her insights. I want to begin with something you wrote in in the introduction, actually. You say, I quote, It's an illusion to imagine that we have complete control over our lives. But if we can check that our ship is sound, our shipmates on board and our hands on the wheel, then we can steer through storms a little more easily, end quote. With increasing discussions today about agency and locus of control, why do you think it's still important to accept that we don't always have complete control over our lives? I'm just bewitched for a moment by your beautiful reading. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. What a lovely question to begin with. Part of the path of life, and I I don't know, I, I sound quite old now. I'm kind of in the middle of life. I'm at that Definitely. And when I say mid midlife, well, if I'm going to live to 108, that's great. <laughs> but one of the things that, that, that comes up and a lot of us talk about around this time of life is where to focus your energy. You know, energy is an extraordinary resource. You know, we can generate it in the cells, between the cells in our body. But we get to a certain point of life and it's where are we going to direct our energy to? You know, when you have limited, when capacity limits, when, you know, whatever way you think about it, it's going to happen or it's it's happening. Where's the most important thing? And that becomes the most important thing to remember, because I think that the illusion is partly one that comes out of this extraordinary gift of life that we have, which is extraordinary. You know, just the experience of being alive even on a bad day, it is remarkable if you think about it. But also what can happen or what has been happening is our culture has started to encourage in us the belief that a successful life is one of maximum efficiency, where we get everything done. And the truth of life, and it's not just me saying it, it's poets, it's philosophers, it's thinkers through the ages, it's not even a recent thing, is that Life is a gift, and one of the most important things we can do is figure out how to use our time. And we can only do that if we know what's important. And we only know what's important when we start to accept that some things are less important because we don't have control over them. Where do we place our energy to have the impact that we want? You know, we've all had that experience of beating our heads against a brick wall you know, flogging a dead horse, you know. In fact, our culture has so many phrases to explain the whole, you know, it's like 58 words for snow, right? We have so many cultural phrases that explain that. And there comes a point when acceptance is really important. Later on in the book, I say that there's this kind of duality in in coaching. One is self-acceptance, you know, and the Buddhists talk about acceptance, accepting the present moment but also wanting to grow or wanting to affect change in our lives. And one of the things that I say is that these can seem to to pull in separate directions, but they don't. In fact, the self-acceptance part is how you grow, because that's the seed. Um, And if that, let me unpack that a little bit more. Coming back to your question, 
When you can accept what you control and what you can't, what you can influence and do your best at, you know, control is a little bit of a, you know, I mean, I press a button on my phone, I'm (laughs) controlling it, but I can't control you. And whenever I work with clients, you know, I work a lot in leadership and I always, one of the questions, in fact, I had it this morning with a client was, how do I get them to do what I want them to do? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, well, guess what? You can't. The only piece of the system you can change is yourself to influence the system, to get everybody moving in the direction you want, even if it's not the way that you want them to move. But by accepting that, you're going to reduce the amount of energy you throw in areas that really aren't important. You're going to have more energy to put into what you can have control over, which is yourself. And sometimes our lack of acceptance around that is actually an avoidance strategy. I'll spend all my energy on this, because then I'm avoiding actually doing the stuff that could make a difference, right? And you're laughing because, you know, maybe I do this perhaps on a daily basis and and sometimes you do and I catch myself doing it, right? And I I catch my clients doing it. I was working with a client yesterday who's writing a book. I said, what's your first step? And she said, well, I'm going to put all my files in order. And I said, but that's that's not writing, is it? (laughs) That's what you want. Ah, she caught herself, right. But that was something in her control. So she was doing that rather than doing the thing that scares her. And sometimes the thing that affects change is the thing that scares us, right? The the Buddhists also say that when you're feeling the the fear, that actually means that something is changing in your life as well. That's the process of change, the process of expanding as well. So finally, to come back to your question, why is it so important? Because our culture is pushing against us even more. It's creating lots and lots of activities and distractions and things we could be doing. I, I was talking, again, with client stories today with someone today who's actually moved to the country and she doesn't have much broadband. <laughs> and she says it's amazing because suddenly I actually have all this time and this energy to do stuff that, that nourishes me, feeds me and feeds my creativity. I think that's that's beautiful. And it's funny that you mentioned broadband. Um, we were speaking with the writer McHeron yesterday and he was saying that he doesn't go on social media at all because he wants to devote the creative energy he has to writing. And I think that's a that's a really great that's a great idea, honestly. It is, it is. And the, the you know, even the little stuff. I, I mean Obama President Obama used to say <laughs> that you'll only ever see him when he was president wearing one of two suits. Because he says to stand in front of a wardrobe and go, now, do I wear this? Do I wear that? Do I wear this? Exhausts him. And he says, you know what? I've, I've got to save my energy <laughs> for the important stuff that's going to hit my desk that day. Right. And it's the same thing. Like, what are you going to direct your energy towards? Because there's so many ways that it can be leached away and they're, they're passive. You can just sit there and your phone will ring. You can sit there and... we you know, a wiser person than me once said, we're losing the ability to permit ourselves to be bored because boredom is fruitful. Boredom is actually full. It's not, you know, and we're also, you know, not allowing ourselves to be empty. You know, that that old story of um, the student who goes to the master, who says, master, I want you to teach me. And the master says, great, well, let's have some tea. And they put some tea in front of them, starts to pour it and pours it out of the cup over the <laughs> over the table and the student goes, what are you doing? And the master goes, well, what I'm doing is a metaphor. <laughs> you are too full. You are too full to teach. Your cup needs to be empty a bit so that it can be full, 
right? And yet we're, we're filling our lives or our lives are being filled for us. And it takes, because of the ways our brains work, because of the ways our systems work, our nervous system, our brain are not just connected, they're the same system. It, it's, it's very, very difficult for us to actually pull ourselves away. We have to make some interventions now to do that. And what kind of interventions would you suggest? Things that, for example, if, if someone Move is sitting to the in... country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Move to somewhere with no broadband. Yeah, smash your broadband. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love your question because it's practical. What can you do? So the first thing to do is to notice that you're being tempted into distraction or that you are already down a rabbit hole. If you don't notice, you can't do anything. So you have to start to notice. You notice by checking in with your body. Your mind will race ahead at a million miles an hour. The only thing that's actually sitting in reality at any one time is your body. And that's the anchor back to reality. So take a breath. Oh, I'm noticing that I'm down a rabbit hole. My brain is going off into the future or back into the past. And so you go, okay. And some people say you use your breath. In the book, I talk about a very simple practice that I learned, which was brilliant if you let me to uh, permit me to tell the story. So I used to meditate with a group. And on one particular occasion, we all sat in this house. I remember it very clearly in Waterloo in London. And we meditated for half an hour. And then we had some, a talk with the teacher. And one of the people said, oh, I feel amazing. I feel really calm. All of my concerns and worries have fallen away. I'm just present and I feel wonderful. But I know that as soon as I open the door to leave and I see the bus, I'm going to go, shit, <laughs> start running how can I how can I stay in this bubble all the time and the teacher very wisely said to her the point is not to stay in the bubble because we can't we don't live in a bubble we live in the world the thing is to notice and he said the simple practice of saying to yourself here I am here I am <gasps> stressed because I can see the bus here I am running for the bus here I am, you know, just inserting ourselves. So the three-stage thing is to notice, to accept. And what I mean by that is don't beat yourself up. We're humans. We're animals with iPhones. We forget this all the time, right? We're not perfect. I'm a coach and I, I, I'm in this world as well, right? With the same nervous system. And then the third thing is to choose, once you've done here I am, and maybe a little bit of centering, which is just whatever it is for you, it might be, I suggest some techniques in the book, but it might be, you know, noticing your body, noticing your breath, you know, wiggling your toes, uh, loosening your belly and your jaw to take that stress reaction offline, right? And stress is good sometimes as well. Stress is yum, I want to get the bus, or yum, I want that cake, or yum, I want to talk to you, or, you know, yum, there's the person I fancy, and, you know, whatever it might be. Just noticing that and centering and then choosing. How do I want to be in this moment? What would be the best thing, use of my time? And I guarantee you that every creative artist is having to do that. Everyone who's trying to do any project, anybody who's trying to have a difficult conversation or a wonderful conversation with a partner or the child or a friend and notices that, hang on, I'm getting distracted by this. I need to bring myself back to presence. It's so useful in your life and we need to practice it. We need to practice it because when we do that, we get, we get more able to do it automatically because at the moment we're automatically getting pulled into 
the next thing, the next thing, the next thing across all the kind of, you know, the spectrum of, of, of distractions that we have. I also say to people, return to the senses. We're, we're kind of behaving like brain taxis. <laughs> return to the senses. Notice what's around you. Notice the plant, the, the buds, the new birds that are appearing in the trees. Just notice that. Notice the different sounds that come around you. Notice um, the textures that you're wearing or the, the weight of your body in the chair. You know, notice what things fit your clothes feel like against your skin. Notice a cup of tea in your hand and the taste of it, you know. All of those things are so important to us that we're, and we're losing. We're losing the ability to be human, if you like. We're, we're just turning into kind of um, reactive uh, little consumers. It's almost like we are becoming these, these algorithms that are... Amazing. We are. We are. Um, there's no doubt about it. And the problem is the algorithm changes and we have to change. You know, a lot of people are talking now about social media, people who are generating content and saying the same thing. The algorithm changes and they have to change their practice And guess what? For a lot of people, it's actually leading them into burnout. There's quite a big discussion going on because the algorithm doesn't care, you know, what time it is. The algorithm doesn't care if you've got a kid to look after or, you know, the algorithm wants your attention. And there's a battle for this attention going on all the time because that attention is valuable, you know, and it's shaping us. It's shaping our psychology, which is already set up to grab at this, right, because we like short-term rewards We like shortcuts. We're very habitual creatures. Much easier for our brains to uh, run off habits than to think everything through, as I would say. Otherwise, it would take us as long to cross a road now as it did when we were learning when we were three years old, right? Um, but we have to start to do that. We have to start to do that in some way. And even in a small way, you know, when I work with leaders, the things that they say most commonly to me is I never find time for strategic thinking. And I say, well, you know, that's your job. You have to, you have to boundary it. You have to boundary it. Um, even if it's 15 minutes a day, every day for total sitting away from your computer, not reacting, telling everyone or get going away where no one can find you for, you know, that amount of time, but you absolutely have to, because otherwise you're just constantly firefighting whatever's coming up. That is so true. And what you were saying reminds me of Virginia Woolf kind of terms, what, what you were saying, she makes us this uh, distinction between the habitual and then these bigger things and she says there's this you know the maybe going to the stores to go and do your groceries is the cotton wool of life and it interferes with this life of the mind so how do we kind of because at the same time we do need to go to the shops and do our grocery runs how do we keep those two together and yet also be able to start reorienting ourselves to prioritize that that larger life yeah it's a great question um <laughs> delegate you know have servants <laughs> Did, didn't she have some servants Virginia Woolf I'm not sure she she probably was well off enough to part of that is to notice your different kinds of energy and in part of the book I talk about different kinds of energy that we all have people think about energy as a kind of amorphous thing but actually we have we have about I, I identify about eight but it's a living list I always say to people if you identify more or if different names work for you then do it They're broadly speaking, physical, cognitive, like where are my keys, <laughs> like that mental sharpness, <laughs> intellectual, like thinking big questions, understanding complex arguments, coming up with 
more than knee-jerk reactions, which I think is incredibly important for our political culture nowadays. You know, we do need to think through these things rather than just go and, you know, become more deep in our divisions. Creative, you know, can you put two ideas together and come up with something new? Uh, Social, you know, what do you like in a group of people? How long can you handle it before you get exhausted? Do you get your energy from people? Does it drain you? Sexual, which is not just, you know, being up all night. (laughs) (laughs) Making the beast with two backs, but it's more, (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. But it's more kind of, you know, can you tune into your sexual energy and and not get overwhelmed by it so that you're able to read the other person as well? Do you feel alive in that sense? And emotional as well. I always stop because I know that I forget one. So if I remember it later on, <laughs> but, but, but emotional as well. So when you've had a difficult conversation with somebody, you know, and you feel that drained afterwards, like, so all of these wells are getting drawn from and they replenish you know you might feel tired it's a Friday it's Friday as we're speaking you know so we've got the weekend coming right and I'm going to see friends and it'll be really lovely and I know that will replenish me so here's the thing coming back to your question start to know yourself when you know are there times of day or certain situations or contexts in which your energy is higher so for me when I was writing the book, for instance, I it works for me, not for anyone else, but for me, because I trial and errored it, that I would spend the morning getting all my admin done, buying food, paying bills, you know, checking invoices, all the rest of it. All of that was done in the morning. And that's fine because that's when I'm quite mentally sharp. That's when I can look at a spreadsheet or look at my accounts or look at my invoices or look at my, wait a minute, I've got no milk, you know, and and get that done. Right. And my physical energy was quite high too. So that's when I exercised. And then in the afternoon, I would have this open time. And I know that when I've got all of that stuff out of the way, then I can be creative because I can have several hours at a time. And I know that I need to take breaks I know that there comes a time when I need to step back away from my computer and go for a walk, sit under a tree if the weather's nice or, and I know when I'm done with that. So the answer really is about, is about self-knowledge or the exploration is to be found in self-knowledge and then keeping boundaries, really keeping boundaries around that as well. And the often, the way that we talk about boundaries often is about boundaries with other people but we can't do that if we can't keep boundaries with ourselves. So I, I talk in the book about inner allies, you know, these inner positive voices that we have that will support us and help us. And one of mine, and it might sound a bit crazy if you haven't read the book, but you have, so <laughs> is, is almost like a, I used to call it the, the Sergeant Major, right? And it was like, like Ed, it was kind of like Ed Harris in, is it Apollo 11, Apollo 13, you know, failure is not an option. So I would take a break. I would do other stuff or I'd get to my time, midday or one o'clock. And this inner ally would come up. I, or I would ask it to come up and they'd go like, come on, failure is not an option. Get in, the, get in the chair, get in the chair, get in the chair. <laughs> and, and that helps me. That helps me. That's my habit now. And it's very good. It's very good at helping me discern the difference between I need a rest and I'm going to give it a bit more time. 
you know, and we do have these feelings of knowing. We know when we're almost there, we're almost there, we just need to give it another 20 minutes. And when we can go, you know what, this is doing no good. We're back to flogging a dead horse. Step away, step away. Come back, you know, wash something up. Yeah. <laughs> wash something up. Like people used to come around and say, you must be writing because your house is so clean. <laughs> um, it's true. Be like, oh, look at the skirting board. But I know that when I'm doing a little task like that for 15 minutes, I come back and I feel fresh again. I've moved my body, which is really important. I've moved my body, I've come back, I feel refreshed again, and I'm ready to sit down and, and complete the task. I think that, I think that's great. And, you know, I think about this, this sergeant who speaks to us. And, and for me, I think sometimes, sometimes that's really motivational. But for some people, it can be, it can get really scary when there's someone who suddenly comes out when you're, say you're having a really tight day and says, actually, <laughs> this is when you're going to get to, you know, this, like a script that you're writing, or you're going to get to doing a marathon. And you just think, but I, I can't. So when, when do we know how to identify like whether or not it's motivation and when we might actually risk burning ourselves out? Beautiful. It's such a powerful question. Thank you. Because it's one that we all battle with, right? And what we need to do is develop discernment. And by discernment, we're not always going to get it right, right? But life isn't about getting things right. It's about noticing and going, ah, okay. But generally speaking, so now we're into the area of inner critics. And, and as I say in the book, there are two kinds of inner critics um, or, or inner negative voices. One is the inner critic. And, and broadly speaking, you'll know them because they'll be quite judgmental and harsh on you. Right. If you know, if you imagined what they would look like, they'd look like something not very nice. Goblin or uh, for some people, it's a teacher that was a oh. bit of a bully at school. Oh, gosh, it looks like, you know, you know exactly what that means. Or, you know, it, there's a harshness to the voice. And it also speaks in a way. And again, you know, we can talk about why this is, why we would have such things. Right. Because they're actually trying to keep you safe. But it does that by yelling at you. It has that harshness, judgmental. You're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. You can't do this. The other inner voice is the saboteur, which is a lot more sneaky because it sounds like a friend, you know. But it has a, what it's trying to do is to get you to escape the point of discomfort that you might be at. And remembering that the point of discomfort might also be because you're trying something new or something difficult or something that's stretching you, or something that is emotionally hard, like telling someone you love them, telling someone you don't love them, you know, all of these things that, you know, and it's trying to get you out the hot seat and go, ah, oh, no, you can do it in text, or you just ghost them, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> or, or if you're trying to do a project, ah, oh, I know, let's organise all your files, <laughs> colour coordinate your bookshelves, you know, or, 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 or Go for a run, which is a good thing, or do lots of yoga, which is a good thing, but can also be used to escape the thing that you really want to be doing, not should, but want to be doing. And the way to kind of notice those is to get familiar with them, because, you know, not to sort of run away from them, but start to identify them. Okay, so there's an inner critic that speaks like this. So I have an inner critic called the judge that will show up. I have an inner critic called uh, the <laughs> the auditor 
<laughs> who the minute I start to do anything creative will go, well, how are you going to earn any money from that? <laughs> like, whoa. Now, it actually can be quite useful, but it needs to come later in the process, right? But I recognize it when it comes up and I go, hey, mate, you know, time to go. And, and what's happening psychologically when I do that is I'm distancing myself from that inner voice. I'm separating from it so that it's not me. It's not me. It's a part of me. It's not all of me. With the saboteur, you do the same thing. I notice the saboteur when it comes up and it goes, oh, look, there's, you know, you've got to write an email, but look, there's a new episode of this on Netflix or let's go and see what Pedro Pascal is doing today. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case he's emailed me. But but there's all kinds of these kind of ways to, to get out of the hot seat. So name it and go, ah, it's the escape artist. And, and speak with compassion, you know, yeah, this is hard. This is the, this email that you've got to write is difficult and complex. And the rewards from checking out, you know, what someone is doing on Facebook or, you know, a sweet and quick. They f- and then before you know it, 45 minutes is gone. So to be able to notice and name it and come back, but with discernment. Now, your question was, how do you know? when it's that motivating voice. Well, you know because of how you feel. For a while, I thought that Sergeant Major was a critic, but but let's use that as a good example. I actually worked with a coach and I said, oh, you know, I used to have to have a nap in the afternoon about four o'clock when I've been writing. Um, I don't anymore because now when I nap, it's like four hours, so that's not happening. So I would lie down and I would, 20 minutes, and then the Sergeant Major would go, come on, on your feet, Ed Harris, failure not an option, get it, make a cup of tea, sit back down again. And I said to my coach at the time, oh, it's this inner critic. And she said, but it doesn't sound like an inner critic. It sounds like it's actually helpful. It's getting you. It, doesn't, it isn't saying to you. An inner critic would say, look at you, you loser, <laughs> lying there. You're no good. You'll never write a book. People like you never write books. You're just, you know, you, 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 you know, that's all you're good for. Whoa, can you hear the difference between, come on, on your feet, on your feet. It doesn't have to beat me down in order to do that. It doesn't have to beat me down remembering as well that all these inner critic saboteur voices are trying to keep you safe because at a certain time in your childhood you only had when you're first born you have three defense mechanisms survival mechanisms one is clinging less useful now that we our parents don't have fur you know (laughs) bear with me you know the second is sucking you've got to be able to feed and the third is belonging so what we're doing all the time is we're scanning for approval from people all the time. And when we see signs, we anticipate signs of rejection or putting ourselves out there and getting rejected or failing, we start to panic because that inner child in us is still very worried that the psychological vulnerability that that evokes is the same as physical vulnerability, which it is when you're a small child and you have to be protected by people. So the harsh voice is there to get your attention, but it's doing it in a very childish way, right? If you think about a kid, you know, will, you know, comes back from school and saying, my teacher hates me. And mum and dad will go, well, why? You know, well, my, I said something. I tried to show my teacher my picture and they didn't like it. And <laughs> what the kid can't say is, so it was an, you know, it, there was a day when Ofsted were in the back of the room and also another kid was being naughty over there and that the, the teacher had been up all night grading and doing lesson plans and had a, had a row with their partner and missed the train on the way. And, with, you know, a small child can't do that, right? 
And so they'll just go, my teacher hates me or I'm terrible because small children make everything about them. Um, they're very egotistical. So we inherit that, you know, we inherit it because that's the way we developmentally wired ourselves. So part of the job of adulthood, and this is what psychotherapists will talk about as well, is to undo that a little bit so that we can fully become the, the adults that we are, despite all of that that's going on, right? They call it patterns, neuroscientists call it wiring, you know, coaches use both of those, if you like, and, and we look for those and point them out for people, not because they're wrong, they're you, they helped you to survive, but also that we need to bring in that discernment as well, so that we can focus more on what motivates us and have a little bit of compassion for the part of us that gets frightened at times. Yeah, and discernment, and there's a, there is a, a theme here that I'm starting to, to notice, which is that a, a lot depends both on, on you know, being really close to ourselves and understanding ourselves, but then also knowing when to step back and create a kind of distance. And it's, it seems to be really, really difficult to, to even know, for example, if we're, you mention in your book internalized scripts, and it's hard to even know, you're like, is this my script? Is this a script that I got from Instagram? Because Instagram makes me feel like I should be like a fitness guru. <laughs> and it's really hard to figure out, like, what do, and also when it comes to ambitions as well, just like, what do I want to do? So what, what do you think about that? Oh, gosh, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, because we do have these scripts around us and we have them from childhood. We have them in our culture. We have them in our families. You know, the, the, the best thing that I can do, and that's really what the book is about, is engage, engage with yourself. Take some time, push aside the distractions and spend some time with yourself, starting the conversation with what I call your big eye, because it's there. You know, the, the way that we live our lives is what I call the little eye, you know, constantly pulled this way, that way by distractions and requests and demands. But there is a big eye. But the, the metaphor that I use or the story that I use to illustrate this is, you know, as I, I was once in a, a, a wood in Scotland and I'm sitting there on my own and it was dusk and there was, you know, permanent mizzle as there is in Scotland, even in August <laughs> or even especially in August. And I, I looked, I heard this noise and I looked up and there was this deer really close to me. And they're pretty wild, the deer there as well, they're, you know. And it was this incredible moment because the deer was obviously aware of my presence, but not bothered by it. And then my phone went off and it ran. It was like, boom, <laughs> and gone. And, and our deeper self, the big eye, is like that deer. You have to sit quite quietly and let it emerge and... What I use in the book are ways that you can connect questions, inquiries, visualizations, um, exercises that you can do to connect with that bigger eye. Because the one thing that I have discovered, and it's not just my discovery, is that what I call the TARDIS, <laughs> you know, the TARDIS thing. We're bigger on the inside. And there's a whole part of us waiting, waiting, longing for us to say hi. But we're you know, checking out what Pedro Pascal is doing and we're answering an email and we're on, and we're longing, we're longing for ourselves. You know, a, a lot of our, if you like, our discomfort, our sadness, our loneliness, and, and we are in an epidemic of loneliness is partly because I think we're losing connection with ourselves as well. 
So the crisis that a lot of us faces is a, is a crisis of meaning because we've, we've uncoupled from ourselves. We've, we've become unmoored from our deeper selves, but we can go back at any time. But we do need to create that space. So there are questions in the book, questions like reviewing the year, what were you most proud of, what's most important to you, when do you feel most alive? I, I talk about, you know, the, the way to find values because values act like your guide, that it's like your compass, uh, you know, so anything that you might want to do or be or try in life, you say, would that align with my authentic self, which encapsulated in your values? I take people on a journey towards the end of their lives and say, right, from this perspective, now you look back at your life. You know, I, I say quite a lot, you know, at the end of your life, you're not going to be glad that you emptied your inbox. <laughs> you know, You're going to say, did I use my time? Did I use my time with the gifts that I was given? Did I experience life? Because at the end, you realise what a gift it is. Well, why not realise it today? That is so true. Why not realise it today? And I think that, I mean, there's this really, I don't even think it's new, but there's always this, this sad notion that seems to be almost claustrophobically around us that, you know, you, you so-called figure your life out when you're maybe in your 20s and maybe 30s. And then all of a sudden when you're, maybe in your 50s or 60s, you're so-called like boxed in. And how can we change that? And how can we tell someone who has like, maybe they're, maybe they're settled, they have a job they've been doing for many years, they're respected, but they're just not happy or they're in a marriage and they're just not happy. How do they take that, that first step to moving out of that box? Right. Well, the, the, the first thing that I would say is that there's nothing wrong Right. It might feel that there's something wrong. And often people say, well, you know, my life is great. Shouldn't I just be grateful for it? And yes, yes. It's the same thing as acceptance, gratitude, you know, but we can't use it to smother the longing. And I want to take a step back for a moment into a bigger context, because life is, developmental psychologists will tell us that life has a series of stages, for, and it's not the same for everybody, by the way, and there's no judgment about that. But in our 20s, we are figuring out how to be successful in the world, how to be in the world. And I mean, you know, what people call adulting, right, in recent <laughs> years. I love that phrase. I think it's great and fairly useless because it means, but, but useful. You know, how do you pay your bills? You know, uh, how do you make sure you've got money in your bank? How do you, you know, budget? How do you get a job? How do you keep a job? You know, all of these things. How do, how do I be a success in the world? And then at a certain stage, the questions of life become different. There's a, there's a, that's called first adulthood in developmental terms. In second adulthood, we start to think differently about meaning. Now, it might mean that all of those things are kind of taken care of. You know, some people say it's a kind of like a hierarchy of needs that you move up. I think it's a lot more messy than that. You know, it's not the questions will come up whatever. Some people used to call it the midlife crisis, and that can still exist. But the question about what's your first step out of it or through it is to recognize that you are at a threshold. And, you know, there's nothing wrong. Again, you know, that feeling a bit lost, that feeling a bit uncomfortable is not a sign that something is wrong. It just might be a sign that something wants to grow, something wants to change. And the first thing is, is to notice the sign for what it is. Because uh, what you can do, the danger is, is that you, you leave your partner, 
you leave your job, you don't know really what you're going towards, but you're like, well, obviously it's my partner is making me unhappy or my kids or my home or, and you leave it and you find yourself, is life any better? Well, for a bit, it might feel like that because it's novelty and great. You know, I, I don't have to, you know, I can, I can eat, I can eat tea and I can eat biscuits in bed and no one's moaning at me. Um, but you return to the same point again, again and again, you'll return to the same point. So what I would say to people is take some time to get to know yourself a little bit. Start to understand what your values are. Start to understand what a meaningful life might look like for you, not for anybody else, but for you as well. Watching out for the internalized scripts, watching out for the people who might say, well, gosh, why would you want to do that? And then take small steps to experiment. And there I kind of ask people to use a little bit more of an entrepreneurial mindset. Here's a, here's a good example, right? So we're now in 2023. Are we out of the pandemic yet? You know, you tell me. But during the pandemic, a lot of people moved to the country for more space. They moved, you know, there was the race for space and people were zooming off into the country. And, you know, I know a couple of people who did that and I'm sure other people do. And they were like, hurrah, hooray, this is great. And now it's more difficult. You know, they, the broadband isn't great. They're, they're tired of having to use their car all the time. Um, they miss their friends. The beautiful old house that they <laughs> they bought has actually got you know, you know, damp in the basement and the roof needs doing, and it's it's a money pit, and it's cold and the heating bills are huge and they're going like, mm, okay, but what about if you'd gone to try that a little bit, you know, what about if you'd done a trial of living in the country for a little bit, what if you had the idea for creating a new business, which is something that people do. You don't need to spend months and months and months in research and development. Come up with a couple of little ideas and then and then nurture them. And I, there's a process for nurturing ideas as well so that the editors don't jump in on them, but also mm -hmm. how to realise them. Like what resources are you going to need? What's the timeline? And then try and get into action. What's the first small step that you could take to see what this will be like for you? Remembering that the most important data, I love talking about data, is how you feel. Because sometimes, you know, let's a good example is, oh, here's a script. I need to be a, a, a social media influencer. That, that would be great. Look at that lifestyle. It's amazing. And they're on beaches all the time. They're digital nomading it. And they're, oh, da, 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 da. But you actually find that when you try a little bit of that, that it's exhausting to be hustling for, for, for clients all the time. It's, it's painful to watch, you know, your numbers go up, but then flatline. And then start to drizzle down unless you are, you know, stoking the fire every two minutes and you're exhausted and trying to find Wi-Fi all the time so you can upload your nest. And people can start to find that exhausting. So how does it feel to live that wonderful life that you always wanted to? That's the data that really matters so that you're checking in with your own sense of motivation and meaning as well, rather than taking on that, that script the script which might not suit you. And of course, with all of them, there's the script and there's, if you like, make it a 3D page, you know, behind that, it might look very nice on the surface. But another thing that we, we, we have around us in our culture now is a lot of surfaces, a lot of people marketing their lives, like, isn't this great? Isn't this great? And actually life doesn't, can look like that on a good day, but on a bad day, not so much. 
Yeah. And I think, well, I will just say that, the, you know, what you were talking about is by far the best piece of data I have come across for the past several months at least. Um, and before we run out of time, I guess I want to ask for all our listeners who now, now that now they, when they listen, they think, maybe, maybe I do want to change my life. But it's, it's not like a 180 degree sudden shift. It's usually a very incremental change. So what words would you, would you share with them while they embark on this journey? Beautiful question and, and a helpful one for people listening as well. Um, so I thank you on their behalf. Always remember that the change happens in a thousand steps. And they, there were probably a thousand little steps before the outward change was seen. So what would be one small change? Like if I asked you, what would be one small change that you could make this weekend? I'd probably say actually go to a, to a gallery or a museum. <laughs> there you go, right? It's as simple as that. Or, or for my leadership client this morning, she's got to take at least 15 minutes a day for, for blue sky thinking. 15 minutes. Or um, not spending the night on Netflix, you know, <laughs> reading a book or calling a friend or making arrangements to go out or going for a walk or whatever it might be, right? One small little thing. And then, you know, keep going. One thing a day, one thing a day, little, little things, because that becomes not just habit changing, but it's also where movement happens, you know, that's where it, that's where you start to see progress, Con, you know, consistent, consistent. And it really is just in one small thing. And, and they layer up as well. The more mindful you can be, the more embodied you can be. It's not just a mindful thing. The more embodied you can be, the more able to be present. Ah, I notice I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, a bit restless. Well, what do I need to do to shift it? I notice I'm feeling a bit deflated what is that okay or do I need to bring the energy up do I need to how do I retool that on the run that is a remarkable change to make because if you think about that that's the platform upon which everything else gets built you know noticing what you need in the moment and you can only do that if you're present so something as little as that will make extraordinary change over time and you will get further faster if you go a bit deeper as well so it is never, because I'm a coach, I'm not a therapist, though I <laughs> love their work. And I'm, and I'm not, it's not an easy distinction. But coaching and the book as well is about getting into action. You know, it's not self-knowledge for the sake of it. It's know yourself so that you can take the steps that will be meaningful to you in a bottom line, you know, which is making, which is how you, you do ultimately find your own path, create your own path. You don't have to wait for it to be built mm -hmm. before you step onto it. That, that old metaphor that people use in the entrepreneurial world or the corporate world, that you're building the plane at the same time as flying it. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming out with all of these like phrases today. But it's the, it's the same thing with life. You proceed in it by living it. It's not something that you can map out perfectly. Coming back to your first question about this question of, of control, I think, it, I, think, I think Martin Luther King said, all you can see is the next step, you know, and, and you, you aim in that direction, but all you can see is the next step. But once you take the next step, then guess what? The next step becomes visible and then the next step after that. And the beauty of it is, is that if you fall off, you can, you can reset at any time. It's not about judgment 
and there isn't a timeline because, and, and this does sound perhaps a little more hippie, <laughs> but it's the journey that makes it worthwhile. Everyone I've spoken to has said it was never about the destination. Okay, I, I changed my career, I changed my life, but it was the process of doing it that gave me the richness of life. So that, you know, in the, in, in the words of one poet, you're living the breadth of your life, not just the length of it. I think that is lovely. And I love that you mentioned poets because it does seem like sometimes poets know some secrets to a happy life. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure that all the listeners to this podcast and the readers of your new book will be embarking on a very exciting, sometimes intimidating, but deeply meaningful journey. So thank you so much for starting oh, that for Thank you. It was a real pleasure. It was lovely to chat to you today. Thank you for your questions. This episode starred Fiona Buckland and was produced and presented by Nicole Wong. The series is made by me and Esme Bright and edited by John Doughty. If you loved this episode, have a listen to Nicole's interview from a few weeks back with Amantha Imber, the author of TimeWise, another excellent contribution to the smart thinking genre with advice to change your life. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com